We know that you want to build your family on the right foundation from the very start, the foundation of Jesus Christ. Concordia Publishing House offers more than 8,000 products for churches, schools, and homes, dedicated customer service, and an experienced staff to help you focus on what matters most. Click to connect at cph.org. Concordia Publishing House, listening, responding, providing for God's people. Concordia Publishing House, cph.org. King's College Choir with the first stanza of the Lenten hymn, My Song is Love Unknown. And that's a song of love, but the Jesus that we will meet here in this coming Sunday, according to the one-year lectionary, is not a nice guy. He's argumentative. He is not listening to his opponent's arguments. And on top of that, the God that we will meet in the Old Testament reading for this coming Sunday seems positively capricious, maybe even evil, telling Abraham to sacrifice his only son to him. How do we sort that out and prepare for this coming Sunday morning? Greetings and welcome to Issues Etc. We're coming to you live from the studios of Lutheran Public Radio in Collinsville, Illinois. I'm Todd Wilkin. Thanks for tuning us in. We're going to spend the first part of this uh, broadcast, the first hour and a little bit in the second hour on this Thursday afternoon. Looking forward to Sunday morning, according to the One Year Lectionary, our weekly series with Pastor David Peterson. Then Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer will join us. We'll go deeper into the Old Testament reading that is actually the three-year series this coming Sunday. Jeremiah 31, The New Covenant. Pastor David Peterson is a regular guest. He always helps us look forward to Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary. He's got a lot of ground to cover here on this Thursday afternoon. He's pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, editor of God Estinct, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, welcome back to Issues Etc. Thanks, Todd. The theme for this coming Sunday not only casts Lent as a season in a different light than Christians are used to seeing it, but especially the coming Holy Week in a different light. What is the theme and how does it, how can it re, kind of reorient our way of thinking typically about the Lenten season and Holy Week? Well, it's very much about Christ taking up his sorrows willingly. He does it in obedience to his Father, uh, but also in his love for us and is even glad to do it because he wants to rescue us. So sometimes we might come at Lent or think about the death of Jesus uh, and feel sorry for him that he has to suffer these things. And that's not impious, but at the same time, we should recognize that this is the will of the Father, that, and the way that God has loved us, and Jesus does it on purpose. He knows what he's doing. He wants to save us. Can you, let's try, before we get into reconcile a few things that we're going to meet in Holy Week, the week that comes, that people will say, but he doesn't seem like he really wants to. Um, and you said it very well, you know, he's happy to take up his sorrows, which I'm not capable of doing. <laughs> Um, right. not, not in that kind of sense. Can you reconcile it with uh, the Garden of Gethsemane, where Jesus seems to be reluctant to move ahead with what he knows God has in store for him? Well, there's, there's real pain in this. It, this isn't some sort of shallow thing. There's real sorrow, real difficulty, and 
Uh, he doesn't want to do it in the sense that nobody wants to, to suffer or be hurt. You know, the fireman doesn't want to run into the burning building and be burned, but he wants to save the child. And he's so focused on, on, on saving us that it's worth it to him. And, and in that sense, he's glad to do it. Uh, the Garden of Gethsemane is, a, is, in many ways, the most profound moment for me uh, in the Passion. And it is so strange to us and so difficult for us to recognize. There, there's two great and horrible heresies in the ancient church. Uh, the one that kind of had the most impact on us was the denial that Jesus was fully God, Arianism. And that's where like a lot of our creeds come from. But there was, an, and, and we've, we've dealt with that, Jesus is really God, fully and completely God. There, there was a sort of counterpart heresy to that, that, God, that Jesus wasn't really man, he only seemed to be a man. And uh, I think that in our current context, we are more prone to that, to denying that Jesus is a man, than we are to de- denying that his, his divinity. And I say that because my parishioners don't much, they're not bothered by the miracles. They don't go, oh, how could Jesus walk on water? That, men can't do that. They're just fine with that. But when we get to the Garden of Gethsemane, and they see Jesus struggling and praying for something that he knows can't be taken away. Uh, that doesn't fit, and that's hard to swallow. And I think that uh, that's part of the mystery that we need to embrace and recognize. He really is man. He's sincere in the Garden of Gethsemane, and yet at the same time, he's happy to take up these sorrows because he sees the prize. So the uh, beginning point for us, as it usually is, is the Gospel for the coming Sunday. John chapter 8. What is presented there, and how would you walk us through it? Well, it's, a, it's, a, it's the end of a big, long argument that's been going on since the beginning of chapter 7. They're, they're in the temple. It's uh, that John 8, the Feast of Booths, has just ended, uh, and he knows that they're plotting to kill him. They've been slandering him. Uh, the priests have sent, or the Sanhedrin, rather, had sent uh, officers to arrest him. There, there's people that are believing in him in the midst of this, but and, and even, is he the Christ? Maybe he's the Christ. All this stuff is going on. But at the same time, there's great hostility. Uh, and, uh, and Jesus is not being uh, particularly nice uh, in, from our perspective. It, it's, a, it's a harsh and difficult argument. Uh, he's not gentle with them at all. And I think that one of the kind of surprising things or something we don't think about that much, is how painful this is for him. Uh, and we can, it happens to us all the time. If we get into an argument at work, you know, we're bothered about it for days, right? We dwell on it, we think about it, we feel dirtied by it. Um, he goes through that as well, except, of course, it's magnified because he's without sin, and he's more frustrated because he actually loves the people he's talking to. So, so it, that, that's what we're walking into is this, Maybe we should just read a few of the, at least the opening verses here. Uh, Oops, I'm on the wrong page. In John chapter 8, we're going to start on Sunday with verse 42, which, as I say, is kind of in the middle. Jesus said to the Jews, If God were your father, you would love me, for I came from God and I am here. I came not of my own accord, but he sent me. Why do you not understand what I say? It is because you cannot bear to hear my word. You are of your father, the devil. And your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and has nothing to do with the truth because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. 
but because I tell the truth, you do not believe me. So, I mean, the things he's saying to them, I, I can't imagine, you know, knocking on somebody's door on an evangelism call and starting out this way. It's, it's pretty harsh. It's pretty pointed. Uh, and, and he gets right at it. They, it's not that they can't understand what he's saying. It's that they cannot bear to hear his word because they hate the truth. They reject the truth because they are of their father, the devil. And then he says, which of you convicts me of sin? If I tell you the truth, why do you not believe me? Whoever is of God hears the words of God. The reason why you do not hear them is that you are not of God. Uh, So he's giving here, they have no reason not to believe him. In the first place, everything he says is obviously true. Uh, And we see that earlier in John 7 with the guards, when they're like, nobody ever spoke like this guy. He speaks with authority. And nobody can find an error Everything that he says is perfectly and obviously in accord with Moses and all of the prophets. Jesus isn't saying new things to them. Uh, He's not just giving opinions and speculation. It's very clear. It's very obvious. So they can't do that. And maybe even more shocking is they can't convict him of sin. He's morally perfect, and they have nothing to accuse him of. Uh, And that might be annoys them as well. It, It really is, if you try to imagine... What would it be like to be around a person who didn't sin at all? Uh, you know, it's, it, it's just almost unfathomable. So, you know, his mother doesn't have, to, doesn't have to tell him to do the dishes, let alone tell him six times. He anticipates. Uh, he's always serving other people. He, he sees the needs of other people. He sees what other people uh, would like, and he's there, and he's willing to serve all the time. It's I mean, we don't, we don't know anybody like that, and we certainly don't know ourselves like that. So all of this uh, demonstrates that these are not innocent bystanders who are confused. And in fact, there are no innocent bystanders in the world. Uh, you either belong to the devil or you belong to Jesus. That's a harsh statement, but that's just a simple reality. And so that's where, that's where he's uh, coming at right from the start, pure kind of ballistic in their face argument. And these are his these are his enemies as you have just said. These are men who at this point even early in John's gospel are bent upon his destruction. I mean that's that's why we get this as a lent last Sunday in lent thing. Right, because because this is part of the conspiracy uh, that that keeps coming up here in John's gospel to kill him and the, and the real hostility. But at the same time this in the uh, at this point this is a mixed crowd. Um, I mean, there is all kinds of people. There are pilgrims that are there for the feast, some people that maybe think he's the Messiah, and, and they're all being kind of raked across the coals. And we should not in any way step aside and go, oh, Jesus is yelling at the people that hate him and that are trying to kill him. Uh, uh, Jesus is yelling at all of us. <laughs> this is law preaching that, that is, is for all of us that we, we need to recognize uh, and confess that it's hard for us to bear the words of Jesus, too. Uh, and, uh, and we're always trying to sort of weasel out of it. And we need to recognize what's at stake here. Well, when we come back, we'll continue looking forward to Sunday morning. There is a, a word that we need to take up that John uses, the Jews, and we need to rightly understand how that is intended there, rather than our modern context. We'll be right back. I think every man, every Christian should consider, at least, the possibility of God calling him into the holy ministry. 
Issues Etc. regular guest, Dr. Carl Fakencher of Concordia Theological Seminary, Fort Wayne, Indiana. Because that's the way that God has designed for faith in Christ Jesus to be spread, for the gift of eternal life that Christ Jesus earned by his death and resurrection to be shared with people by the washing of baptism for infants and for adults, for the instruction, the proclamation of the word that happens uh, on a nonstop basis in God's kingdom. God uses people, he uses men to be those proclaimers, to be those men who who share the, the sacraments. If you've ever considered becoming a pastor, contact Concordia Theological Seminary in Fort Wayne, Indiana. Their phone number, 1-800-481-2155, 1-800-481-2155, or visit ctsfw.edu. Your daily Lutheran Bible class. You're listening to Issues Etc. Imagine SteadfastLutherans.org as the internet version of your neighborhood pub your neighborhood confessional Lutheran pub, that is, where the finest in Lutheran conversation is going on at every table and at the bar, sometimes contentious, but always informative and unabashedly Lutheran. We're only serving Wittenberg Ale. We even have a guy named Norm. So check us out, www.steadfastlutherans.org. We'll save a seat at the bar for you. Those beautiful notes were just the beginning of We Praise You and Acknowledge You, O God, Concordia Publishing House's debut CD collection from Pastor Stephen Starkey, one of the most significant Lutheran hymn writers of our time. For a limited time, save 10% when you use promotional code URA. Simply visit cph.org today. Lutheran Thought, Lutheran Substance, Lutheran Music, brought to you by Concordia Publishing House. Stands a two of the hymn, My Song is Love Unknown. That is, by the way, the hymn of the day for this coming Sunday, and we're anticipating this coming Sunday, walking through the one-year lectionary still in John's Gospel, chapter 8, where Jesus continues to argue with his opponents in the temple. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. Pastor Peterson, a brief word, if you would, on that term that John uses often in his gospel because of the audience to whom he's writing. He uses this word, the Jews, and it's difficult for us to hear that today without a little bit of racial or ethnic slur mixed in. Yeah, that's right, and I think we need to be aware of that uh, because it does sound, come, come off that sounding that in modern English. That's not in any way John's intent. John himself is Jewish. All of the first apostles are Jewish. Jesus is Jewish. Uh, it really is impossible for a Christian to believe that he is ethnically superior than his Lord. I mean, that he's in any way, that Jesus is inferior. So racism just doesn't fit with Christianity at all. Anti-Semitism, thinking that you're thinking that uh, Jewish people are inferior, it, it, that's a completely unchristian, untenable position. But I think we do have to kind of be aware that it sounds harsh in our ears. It didn't 
it, it, it wasn't a, a racial slur in John's mouth. That was just simply, you know, the way we would say the Germans or the French. Uh, so we would probably say in modern English, we don't say the Jews. We say Jewish people, and that kind of softens it. I don't know why, but I think we just have to recognize it. But don't let anybody tell you that John is a racist or that Christianity is racist, uh, because, because they're not. And the problem for us is it's, this isn't about ethnicity. This is about spirituality and about faith. And the people that are at odds with Jesus, are, they do not have faith in the Messiah. They are not expecting a Messiah, or they don't want a Messiah that's going to come and be a sacrifice for them. They don't think they need for sins forgiven or whatever their problem is, but they're not accepting and believing in the religion of Abraham, which has already come up in uh, John chapter 8 and 7, and it's going to come up again here in a few verses. Uh, they're not the true children of Abraham because they don't have the faith of Abraham. And modern-day Judaism, the religion of Judaism, uh, is not actually a messianic religion that surprises people. But modern-day Judaism reads the Bible in a way that's very similar to the Mormons and the Jehovah's Witnesses. They claim to be uh, reading the Bible. They claim to be going by the Old Testament, but they don't see the Christ in it. They don't see the Messiah. For the most part, modern-day Judaism is a religion that believes that, that they are God's special people because of their ethnicity and that God is causing them to suffer in extra ways uh, as a way of working out and bringing them to salvation. Their suffering earns their salvation, and their ethnicity makes them God's special people. That is not the religion of Abraham. That is not the religion of the Old Testament. Now, there, I'm not talking about ethnicity. I'm not talking about Jewish people. There are people that are ethnically Jewish that are Christians, and there are people that are ethnically not Jewish that follow Judaism. But we need to be clear that Judaism is a different religion. We are the true children of, of Abraham because we have the faith of Abraham. Talk about, and this is something that you've alluded to before here in our conversation, as you would call it, the obstinacy, the unreasonableness of this unbelief that we see on display here. Well, that's, the, that's what always happens with sin. Sin makes us stupid, and, and these people are being stupid. Uh, they're, they're deliberately and willfully denying what's right in front of them because it's inconvenient and they don't want to see it because they're afraid of what it will cost or, or, or whatever it is. And, and you can see this. Why, how in the world could you accuse Jesus of having a demon, which they do several times, uh, after we see how obvious, I mean, he's healing people, he's doing good things. So, again, we ought to recognize that this is, they're not innocent bystanders who are just ignorant of the facts and mean well and are trying hard. It's worse than that, and we're all worse than that, and that's why we need real redemption. We don't just need a, you know, an on-the-spot correction and a little bit of education. We need actually intervention, and we need divine help and something radical to happen. That, of course, is that there would actually be a substitution and a payment made for us that we would be able to be saved. So Jesus is, if just to kind of stay with the reason element of that, you say that Jesus is really giving them every, absolutely every reason, if reason were the key thing here, to believe in him. Uh, you mentioned before that they can't prove him false. They can't convict him of sin. Uh, they can't find him out of concord with the Old Testament scriptures. Uh, these right. are the, these are these guys who know their scriptures. And... Uh, the fact that he's doing miracles, 
right? And, mm-hmm. and all the prophecies that had fallen down in front of him. You know, the, the birth in Bethlehem, the wise men coming. I mean, right, it, it's, it's indisputable for these people, but they dispute it. And it's just, it's just obstinacy. It's, sin makes us dumb. It's Pharaoh. You know, Pharaoh knows that this is by the finger of God, but he doesn't care. Uh, he, wants, he wants what he wants, and he's going to do it. They accuse him of all things, as you've said here, of having a demon. This isn't the first time they've, we've talked about this subject. What's behind that accusation? Well, it, first of all, they, call him a, they say he's a Samaritan also, uh, which, is, which is a racial slur, um, and, they're, and they're trying to sort of get it because he comes up from, from Nazareth. But the, uh, the real point of call, saying that he has a demon, of course, is just to say that he's evil, he's not good, and he's somehow deceiving them. But what, of course, happens is it's very clear that they're the ones that are evil uh, and that they are just willing to say and do anything to get out from underneath this law that he's preaching because they don't want his gospel. Now, um, does Jesus answer this demon charge at all? Well, he, he ignores the Samaritan thing. He does answer the demon charge in that he says, let me, let me read it here so we get, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father and you dishonor me, yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. And this is really a profound moment because they're trying to dishonor him with slander and lies, even though he's the truth teller. Uh, but he is not seeking his own glory, so he doesn't really defend himself fully. The, uh, he just simply states it, I don't have a demon. The father seeks his glory, but that glory is not in defeating them through power or through reason and argument, but the glory that the father seeks for the son is that the son would be defeated by them and their power in order to be a sacrifice for their sin. So it's this, they have no idea what's going on, really, because they're so caught in their sins. But he's all actually explaining to them what he's come to do. And remember, this has taken place in the temple, uh, but they're blind to it. And the father is honored in obedience. The son is honored in self-giving love. And, of course, the temple is the place of sacrifice and of cleansing and of the place where God allows his people to come to him and have safe access because they've been cleansed through the sacrifices and, and all of this wonderful stuff, but they just sort of refuse it. They, they can't understand glory in any terms except sinful, selfish terms. And Jesus says, oh man, oh man, or, or uh, truly, truly, I say to you, anyone who keeps my word will never see death. That's, pr- that's a very John-like thing to include here. He likes that a lot. Uh, resurrection runs through the gospel. How do Jesus' opponents respond? Well, now they kind of go crazy. Um, and uh, uh, how, could you, how could you say that, that uh, somebody's not going to die? And they come back to, uh, uh, to Abraham again. So they say, now we know that you have a demon because you're promising life and you're saying no one dies. A- they say, Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, if anyone ca- takes, keeps my word, he will never see death, taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died and the prophets died? So they say it twice. Who do you make yourself out to be? So they haven't been listening, right? He hasn't made himself out to be anything because he doesn't glorify himself. But the father glorifies him and makes him to be the temple that's torn down, 
the sacrifice, the scapegoat, the incense, the mercy seat, all the stuff of the temple that, uh, that intervenes for the people and allows them to be reconciled to God, uh, that's who he makes himself out to be, or that's who God the Father makes him out to be, but they won't listen. Uh, and, of course, they really commit uh, a horrible piece of blasphemy here, probably the worst uh, piece of blasphemy that they have, when they say that Abraham is dead. Uh, because they simply deny that God is the living God, and he is the God of the living. They deny the resurrection, they deny the faith of the fathers, uh, and in a sense, uh, shamefully, they want Abraham and the prophets to be dead. So Jesus then responds, he, uh, he's going to take Abraham for himself. Uh, he says, if I glorify myself, my glory is, glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day. He saw it and was glad. And then the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? And Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So uh, they brought up Abraham, and he says, look, he's my Abraham. <laughs> he's, he's my man who I saved. He saw my day. He longed to see it. They rejoiced to see it, uh, and he's glad for it. So the play here is between those who believe in him, keep his word, will not see death. Abraham sees life uh, in seeing the day of Jesus. But, of course, the day of Jesus is the day of his death, uh, but his death is our life. And Abraham rejoices in that because Abraham is now fully sanctified and at one with the will of the Father. So it doesn't make Abraham sad or, or make him feel guilty. We saw the same sort of thing with Moses and Elijah at the Transfiguration. At the Mount of Transfiguration, the three of them, Moses, Elijah, and Jesus, are talking about his exodus out of this world, that is, his crucifixion, his death, and they're not sad by it. That's what they want to talk about because that's the way God loves us. Uh, so the death of Jesus is received by Abraham as the greatest gift, and it fills him with joy. But, of course, they don't want that. So now we get another truly, truly, amen, amen, says Jesus, which, which, actually, which indicates he's saying something very significant. It's, it's like taking an oath. Truly, truly, before Abraham was, I am. And, of course, grammatically, what we expect it to be is, before Abraham was, I was meaning that, you know, Jesus is eternal and older than Abraham, so he could have therefore easily seen that Abraham looked forward by faith and saw his day. I mean, the angel, uh, the archangel Michael could say that. He could say, before Abraham was, I was. Or Adam could say it. There, the people that were older than Abraham could say it. But Jesus is going a lot further than saying he's older than Abraham, and even further than just simply saying that he's divine. And uh, what he's really doing here with saying, I am, is he's taking up the divine name that was given to Moses in the burning bush as his own, uh, the name that we usually translate as Yahweh. Let's pick up right there on the other side of the break. What, well, how broad, how big, how expansive is Jesus' claim here in John chapter 8? We're looking forward to Sunday morning with Pastor David Peterson. Do you wish your Lutheran school offered Latin, Greek, or logic? What about German or calculus? 
Right now, local Lutheran schools in two different states are utilizing Wittenberg Academy to expand their course offerings. Whether it's Latin for third graders or logic for seniors in high school, Wittenberg Academy can help. For your homeschooler or for your brick-and-mortar Lutheran school, we have solutions. To find out more, visit wittenbergacademy.org. Did you know that Luther Academy has been providing continuing education for confessional Lutheran pastors and laypeople worldwide for more than 20 years? Luther Academy publishes Logia, the Confessional Lutheran Dogmatic Series, and Luther Digest. Find out more about Luther Academy and sign up to receive their free email newsletter at lutheracademy.com. lutheracademy.com and like them on Facebook, facebook.com slash lutheracademy. Bethany Lutheran College is pleased to sponsor Issues Etc. and Lutheran Public Radio. Bethany Lutheran College is located in the picturesque river town of Mankato, Minnesota, and is committed to making Christian higher education affordable for all with generous financial aid packages available. At Bethany, you'll find stimulating academic programs, a friendly atmosphere, and opportunities to grow both in intellect and in your faith, all within the framework of a supportive Christian environment. For more information, visit us on the web at BLC. Mount Olive Lutheran Church in Duluth, Minnesota would like to invite you to join us Sunday mornings at 9.30. Whether you are visiting our beautiful city or live here, we have liturgical worship that shares Jesus with you. We're easy to find at 20th Avenue East and Superior Street and also offer Bible classes at 825 Sunday mornings with Sunday school September through May. Check out our website for other Bible study times, visit, or call. 218-724-2500. Clear. Concise. Consistent. You're listening to Issues Etc. Thanks to the following congregations for standing with us by joining the Issues Etc. 300. Gloria Christi Lutheran, Greeley, Colorado. St. John's Lutheran, Rosemount, Minnesota. Trinity Lutheran, Waltham, Minnesota. Trinity Lutheran, Fredericktown, Missouri. Zion Lutheran, Gravelton, Missouri, Christ the King Lutheran, Billings, Montana, Redeemer Lutheran, Nashville, Tennessee, and Zion Lutheran, Douglas, Wyoming. Find out how your church can support this worldwide outreach by including Issues Etc. in your mission or advertising budget. Go to our website, issuesetc.org, and click Support. When your congregation joins the Issues Etc. 300, we'll advertise your congregation on the radio, at our website, and in the Issues Etc. Journal. Issuesetc.org. Click support. The Issues Etc. 300. Lenten hymn, My Song is Love Unknown, the third stanza. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. We're looking forward to Sunday morning, walking through the propers for the coming Sunday morning, according to the one-year lectionary, with Pastor David Peterson, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, editor of Godestine's The Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. 
David, before the break, you were right in the middle of t- telling us about Jesus making this expansive claim, uh, applying the divine name of God to himself and claiming to have been, well, I mean, how far does it go? Is he claiming to be the one who called Abraham, who uh, appeared to Abraham, who who made the covenant with Abraham, who tested Abraham, as we're going to talk about a little bit later? Sounds like he is making all those claims in just one name, I am. In one name, yeah. And, and a name that is highly offensive to them, because in the time between the Testaments, after Malachi uh, was written and before John the Baptist came, they had developed this custom or tradition of not speaking the divine name, that, that, that particular name in Hebrew, Yahweh, the name that God speaks from the bush. Uh, and they, the reason they weren't speaking it out loud was they didn't want to misuse it. So they were trying to keep the second commandment. Now, there's a huge problem with that, uh, and that is that the name of God is also misused if it is neglected. Uh, the commandment requires us to pray, to call, to call upon it in every trouble, pray, praise, and give God thanks. So they weren't really keeping the second commandment, but they were trying, I guess, and they thought they were. So to hear the divine name in any context out loud for them is sort of offensive, even though it's a stupid offense. And they, I mean, they shouldn't be offended by it, but they are. Uh, that's why it seems blasphemous to them. But it actually goes even one step worse. Uh, than that, because the name Yahweh with a Y, Y-H-W-H, translates literally not as I am, but as he is. And it's kind of a funny thing, the way it works itself out. In Exodus 3.14, Moses wants to know, who who do I say sent me? And God says, I am who I am. Uh, uh, And then he says it again, I tell them, I am has sent me to you. So three times he uses this. And it's actually the Hebrew word, Ahweh. It's spelled differently. It's A-H-W-H in, in English. And, of course, what's happening here is the word has been conjugated. So uh, it, after that, God himself, speaking to Moses, conjugates it, because Moses isn't going to say, I am. Moses is not talking about himself in the first person. He's talking about God in the third person. So he says, he is. So You may have heard that the word Yahweh means I am. It doesn't. It actually means he is. It comes from the word I am uh, in in Exodus 3.14, but it's actually a little bit different word. And the only place this Yahweh, the the I am, in the first person is used is in 3.14. Well, they're not even saying Yahweh because they don't even want to say he is, which is completely appropriate. And I suspect that since they're in the temple, they're speaking Hebrew, and Jesus is saying this in Hebrew, and he doesn't say Yahweh, he says Ahweh, which was only said three times. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden, he is taking this to, uh, on himself in this most quintessential moment in the history of our people, uh, in that God giving his personal and divine name to Moses in order that Moses might lead them out of slavery in Egypt. This is the birth of our people, the giving of God's name, that we would have access, that we could call upon him, and they've stupidly stopped using God's name as it's been given to them, and Jesus is going one step first. Worse. So the claim that he's making here is it's hard to translate into English. Uh, you really need this kind of whole history. And that's why they go crazy. Uh, and that's why they're like, now we've got to kill him, uh, because he's offended us. Their reaction <clears throat> to hearing God himself 
for the third time in all of human history, utter his own name, speak that those words, I am himself, should have been what? To fall down and worship. Uh, you know, they should have been like Moses and taken off their shoes. They should have recognized they were standing in a holy place and the incredible mercy that God, you know, comes to them in this form that they can tolerate in order to, he's seeking them, right? He hasn't come to kill them and to destroy them. Uh, he's seeking them out. But uh, sadly, of course, they pick up stones to throw at him. Uh, th- their response is, we don't want you. We don't want the God who is uh, among us. Go away. Is this part of Jesus' suffering, that he is, and I'm talking here, does, does this pain him, um, that he, is, he came unto his own and his own did not receive him, and they didn't even get him, in fact, they rejected him? Yeah, I think this is in some ways, uh, next, to the, next to the rejection of the Father on the cross, when he becomes a curse for us, guilt and sin, uh, this is the most painful thing, uh, worse than the scourge. You know, the emotional pain is, is harder to deal with, words... Words hurt more than sticks and stones, and he loves these people, and he's and he and they're not going to stop him. He's going to do. He's come for them, and he's going to die for them, whether they receive the benefit or not. Uh, but I think this is incredibly painful. Maybe uh, I think this is more painful probably than the than the trial in front of Herod and Pilate. Pastor David Peterson is our guest. We're looking forward to Sunday morning. We'll move on to the intro it for this coming Sunday, Psalm 43, and how it joins us together with that theme of Jesus going willingly to the cross. We'll be right back. Facebook, Twitter, Pinterest, email, Google+. Simple ways that you can share Issues Etc. programs with your friends, relatives, and fellow parishioners. Just go to Listen On Demand archives at issuesetc.org and look for the share feature images posted beneath each audio segment. You're only one click away from telling someone about Issues Etc. The Listen On Demand page at issuesetc.org and look for Share This. Hey St. Louis, how would you like to achieve your fitness goals in a fun and supportive atmosphere? Hi, this is Kevin Reisick, owner and operator of Arch Fitness of East Alton, Illinois. We offer adult boot camps throughout the week. These camps include cardiovascular conditioning, muscular strength and endurance training, balance and coordination activities, and more. For more information, give me a call at 618-670-6952, Arch Fitness of East Alton, Illinois, 618-670-6952. Christ-centered, cross-focused, you're listening to Issues Etc., Listen to the best of the church's music for the season of Lent at LutheranPublicRadio.org. Sacred music for the season of Lent, LutheranPublicRadio.org. What do lay people owe their pastors? I've written an article in the latest Issues Etc. journal titled, What Hearers Owe Their Pastors, Receive the Gift, and you can read it by subscribing to the online Issues Etc. journal. Just click the red subscription button on the right-hand column at issuesetc.org. The Wittenberg Trail feature details Jim Pierce's journey from Pentecostalism, fundamentalism, and atheism to confessional Lutheranism. The free online Issues Etc. journal, issuesetc.org. Hey, my soul. 
Stanza five of the hymn, My Song is Love Unknown. We're talking about this coming Sunday morning, moving from the gospel to the intro it, moving from the various readings to the intro at the Psalm 43 with Pastor David Peterson. I'm Todd Wilkin. This is Issues Etc. David, let's talk about the intro at Psalm 43 selected verses. How does it move us toward that theme that we've been working with, that Jesus goes joyfully to the cross and that he will accomplish this saving work in his time and in his way. Uh, at the end of the, the last verse of Psalm 43, which would be kind of the middle of the intro, it, it reads, Why are you cast down, O my soul, and why are you in turmoil within me? Hope in God, for I shall again praise him, my salvation and my God. So the psalm ends with, with a word of praise and of hope. And it's a psalm about Jesus, and it's a, it's, it's a psalm that uh, is expressing what it's like to be in the middle of his sorrow, in the middle of his passion and suffering. Uh, and yet, it ends with this hope and this expectation of praise and the goodness of the Father. So that's the way it moves us. Uh, it, it does start in a surprising way, and in a way that I think Lutherans tend to be uncomfortable with, and that's that the first words are, Judge me, O God, or in the uh, ESV, vindicate me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. But of course, Jesus can do this with impunity. I mean, he doesn't have any fear that if he's judged, if he's evaluated according to his morality, that he's going to fail, because he has not sinned. He has kept the law. Uh, It's a little bit tougher for us. And vindicate, I'm not sure that's the best translation, uh, but it does work very well here, in that, of course, to vindicate implies an innocence and a false accusation. The resurrection of Jesus Christ is a vindication, very much so, because the resurrection of Jesus proves that his word was true, that he was telling the truth all along, and it proves that his Father has accepted his sacrifice. So it, the resurrection is a vindication, um, and Jesus can pray for that, uh, vindicate me, uh, and he can also pray, judge me, because he, he knows that he's right. Um, he is praying this uh, all the time, of course, but certainly it fits in the temple as he suffers the abuse of these rabbis and these other people. Uh, since he's innocent, he can do this. But the psalm also then reveals the, the sorrow that he has over this. Uh, but it gets most interesting a couple verses later when he says, bring me unto thy holy hill and to thy tabernacles, which which mean, the holy hill that, that Jesus is praying for the Father to bring him to is actually Golgotha, right? Mount Calvary. Bring me to the place where we're going to bring this to an end, where finally we're going to pay for these people, where we're going to, we're, we're going to give them an out, we're going to provide this avenue that they might be what they were intended to be and belong again to us, be reconciled to you, be holy. That's what he wants to do for them. He doesn't want to destroy them. He doesn't want to visit his wrath upon them. And the very, very next line, uh, when he says, then I will go unto the altar of God unto my exceeding joy. Well, the altar of God, the ultimate altar of God, that all other altars are reflecting or echoing, is the cross itself. That's where the sacrifice is laid out, is given for humanity. The altar in the temple on Mount Zion in Jerusalem is a reflection of the cross. Uh, There, the animals that were sacrificed were, were placed upon the altar and consumed in fire. That's what the altar in the temple was for. That is showing uh, and the kind of death that Jesus is going to die, that he's going to be destroyed in his Father's wrath in our place. Uh, 
and also what we call altars uh, in, our, in Christian churches. Uh, we don't have sacrifices on them because the sacrifice has been offered, but they, our altars are supposed to be symbols and remembrances of the cross, that Jesus has been sacrificed for us. But of course, for us, quite beautifully, our altars have become tables, uh, and they are the place from which the Holy Communion comes to us. In any case, Jesus will go to the cross and be sacrificed for the sins of the world. And here in the psalm, we see that he is praying for that. He wants to go to the cross. He's ready to get this over with and to do what he's been, create, what he's been uh, taken up flesh to do. So he goes with joy and he praises his Father for the mercy and love that doesn't spare him in order that he might spare us. And then, as we already said at the end, hope in God, for I shall yet praise him. Jesus knows the cost and the sorrows. The pain is real. This is not a minor thing. And yet, at the same time, he knows the promise, and he waits for the resurrection and the bestowal of his inheritance, which is the heathen. That is, we are his inheritance. Now, Lutherans, like I say, they don't, Lutherans are uncomfortable saying, judge me. We'd rather say, forgive me or be merciful to me. But we need to get over that, because we need to learn to pray the Psalms with Jesus. Uh, and, uh, and not try to be superior to them. We're not asking here to be judged by our works. We're asking to be judged by Christ's sacrifice. Uh, and we should not fear judgment. We look forward to judgment day because we're going, we've been forgiven. We've been declared righteous. And that righteousness is real. The righteousness that has been declared to be yours, Todd, can withstand an inquiry, it can withstand an examination, cross-examination, evidence. It can withstand it all because it's real. Uh, the righteousness that has been declared to be yours, that's been given to you as a gift by Christ, is real, and it won't fail or prove false. And in that righteousness, we can stand up with the same confidence as Jesus and say, judge me, O God, and plead my cause against an ungodly nation. And of course, part of that then, too, is that last part. Jesus in the temples in the middle of an ungodly nation and uh, that's why he's suffering this abuse. And he wants to be separated from them, and so do we. We want, we want to be separated from those who are persecuting us and hurting us, the ungodly nation. And we also, unlike Jesus, want to be separated from our own evil thoughts of self-pity and despair. Uh, that that uh, we need deliverance and we need help if we're going to get to heaven. And of course, we have this promise, and that's what we want. When we say, I will go to the altar of God... We also mean Jesus meant he's going to go to the cross. Bring me to the cross, Father. And we mean it too. We're going to go to the cross of Jesus, not to our own crosses, but to his cross. And then we must mean we're going to go to Holy Communion uh, because the Holy Communion delivers to us in time the crucified and risen body and blood of Jesus. It brings the fruits of the cross to us for the forgiveness of sins, the declaration of righteousness, the strengthening of our faith. Uh, that's, wh that's what we're going to the altar for. We're going to the cross to get the stuff of the cross that we need to be declared righteous so that we can stand in God's judgment, innocent and pure. So we also then hope in God and confess that we will not stop praising him because we also believe in and expect to be raised even as Jesus was raised. We have, uh, as we often do, it kind of the embarrassment of riches situation going on this coming Sunday, because in addition to everything we've said already in the gospel reading, in the intro and the antiphon, we have this Old Testament reading, which is in and of itself uh, 
fodder for many a sermon and uh, <laughs> weeks and weeks and weeks of Bible class if you were to do it justice. The You say the near sacrifice of Isaac. Yeah, the near sacrifice of Isaac. I, I, I don't like it to be, I don't like it when we call it the sacrifice of Isaac because he's not sacrificed. And, uh, and he's not the ultimate type. Uh, he is a type. He is showing us an awful lot of, of who Jesus is, of who the Messiah is. Uh, he's the only son. He carries the wood on his back. And, and really important, he's willing to be sacrificed. That sometimes gets, uh, we miss that, I think. Because remember that Abraham's a very old man at this point, and Isaac's a strapping young boy. So he allows Abraham to tie him down on the bundle of wood uh, on the altar that he knows is that he will be, his throat will be slit and he'll be consumed by fire. That's the way these sacrifices go. So Isaac allows it because he trusts his father. And he believes that God is more than his father. He trusts God. He believes that God is good, and he waits for good. So he's definitely a type of, of the Messiah. And then, of course, Abraham's a type of, of us. He's the man of faith. Uh, he trusts in the goodness of God. I love this when he tells his servants, we will return to you. He's not lying. Uh, he's confessing. He doesn't know how they're going to return. I mean, he, he thinks he's going to go and kill Isaac. But at the same time, he, know, he knows that God has made promises that he's going to keep, and those promises include he's going to be the father of many nations through Isaac, and the Messiah is going to come through Isaac. So somehow Isaac has to live, even if, us, even if Isaac is killed. So Abraham refuses to believe that God is evil, even when he seems to be. He insists that God is good and will be good to him, and that he will keep his promises. It's very much like the Syrophoenician woman from a couple of weeks ago, and that's faith. So ultimately, though, I think we've got to note that ultimately Isaac goes free. The ram dies in Isaac's place, the ram that's caught in the thicket by its strength, by its horns. And the Lord does provide the sacrifice, an innocent for the guilty. Isaac's not really innocent. He's a sinner like us. But the ram is innocent, and he's a substitute that allows Isaac and Abraham and all of us to live. So uh, Abraham lives because the ram dies. And of course, not just that ram, but the ram uh, uh, that, that that ram is foreshowing, the Passover lamb that John points out, behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Yeah, it's a marvelous account. We could talk about it for hours. I, I love the idea that Abraham seems to be firmly convinced of through the, the entire account that, and especially afterwards, that God is going to provide a sacrifice even if it is Isaac, I, I completely agree with you there. And the fact of the matter is, this ram just didn't happen to walk up behind Abraham at the, at the last minute. He has been probably struggling. You know, I just think about God uh, 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 providing the thicket and the ram well in advance. The, the ram's there waiting for Abraham and Isaac when they arrive in the place that God shows them. He's there already provided, but God is still testing Abraham. And Abraham can't see the ram until it's revealed to him. The, uh, he's there all along. And it's, but, yeah, I, I can't stand it when people uh, talk about Abraham as though Abraham didn't believe he was going to kill the son. That, that's a problem for me. He, he believes he's going to kill him. He's been told to kill him. But that's, that's the essence of his faith. It's, it's, yeah, I know, it's a remarkable account, and it's so important is, is this also the 
antitype to the moment that you mentioned before being forsaken by the Father with no substitute. Christ himself is the substitute. Yeah, completely, because Isaac gets to go free. Isaac is not killed for his sins or for the sins of Abraham, uh, and, and he, there, there's a substitute provided. And, of course, there is no substitute for Jesus. There can't be. Uh, he, he, he goes and he knows. I also love this caught by his strength, you know, that Jesus is caught by his love. Uh, it, in a sense, you know, Jesus could walk away, uh, I mean, in the sense that uh, he's divine and he, has, and he has fully free will, but he can't walk away uh, because he's bound himself by this promise, and he's bound himself by this promise because, because, of, because of love, uh, and he wants us to be reconciled. He won't let, he won't let the devil have us. We're looking forward to Sunday morning in the one-year lectionary series. A few more minutes on the other side of this break with Pastor David Peterson, pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, and editor of Godestine's The Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. When we come back, one more brief question on that ram caught in the thicket by his horns. Coming up on this this uh, summer is a great opportunity for what Luther used to call the mutual consolation of the brethren, and we would include among the brethren the sisters as well. It's the Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, an opportunity to study together, to worship together, and to learn together. It's a great opportunity. It's Friday, June the 19th, and Saturday, June the 20th in Collinsville, Illinois, about 15 miles east of St. Louis. Attendance is limited to 400 Registration fee is $100. It includes meals and... You can find out more by clicking the Making the Case logo at our homepage, issuesetc.org, or call Craig, 618-223-8385. Email him, craig at issuesetc.org. It's not about you. It's about Jesus for you. You're listening to Issues Etc. How would you like to attend a conference and hear Paul Meyer, Molly Ziegler-Hemingway, David Menton, Chris Rosebro, Jonathan Fisk, and Will Whedon? You're invited to the 2015 Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, June 19th and 20th in Collinsville, Illinois. Registration is $100 per person. For more information, visit issuesetc.org. The Issues Etc. Making the Case Conference, June 19th and 20th in Collinsville, Illinois. Issuesetc.org. Cradled in historic Perry County, Missouri, the manger of the Missouri Synod, Emanuel Lutheran Church at 453 Northwest Street in Perryville proclaims God's Word and celebrates His Supper on Saturdays at 5.30 and Sundays at 7.30 and 10 using the church's liturgy contained in Lutheran service book enriched with ancient and modern hymns. For more information, call 573-547-8317 or visit www.emmanuel-perryville.org. South Africa, China, Germany, Trinidad and Did you know that people listen to Issues Etc. around the world? India, Sweden, Egypt, France, Turkey, Japan, Australia, Canada, United Kingdom, Hong Kong, Austria, Finland, Malaysia, Singapore, Bulgaria, Korea, Brazil. You can support the worldwide outreach of Issues Etc. by making a secure online donation at issuesetc.org. You can also donate by check. Make your check payable to Lutheran Public Radio and send it to LPR Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois 62234. LPR Box 912, Collinsville, Illinois 62234. 
Help us proclaim Christ to the world. The Philippines. Mexico. Spain. New Zealand. Kuwait. Here are two new ways to stay connected to Issues Etc. Facebook and Twitter. You'll find photos of in-studio guests at facebook.com slash issues etc. And you'll find a list of upcoming topics and guests on Twitter at Issues etc. Social networking for the thinking Christian. Facebook.com slash Issues etc. And on Twitter at Issues etc. Connect with fellow Issues Etc. junkies today. Facebook.com slash Issues etc. And on Twitter at Issues etc. King's College Choir with the final stanza of the hymn, My Song is Love Unknown. Ten more minutes as we look forward to Sunday morning with Pastor David Peterson, according to the one-year lectionary. Then we're going to be joined by Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer. He is going to lead us into Jeremiah 31. That will sound familiar to some of you who are preparing for the three-year lectionary this coming Sunday. It's the Old Testament reading. Jeremiah talks about a new covenant, not like the old one, which my people broke, although I was a husband to them. We'll get into those verses and find Christ in the Old Testament in about 10 minutes here on Issues Etc. Pastor Peterson, uh, it's kind of an aside, but we have such beautiful animal imagery that portrays the saving work of Christ. We have the Agnes Day, and we have that peculiar one with the pelican feeding her young. And this is one, the ram caught in the thicket that you were talking about before the break, especially connections you made there. I don't see a lot of that in our are the ram caught in the thicket image. No, and it, especially if it's a thorn thicket, right? You know, you get the whole crown of thorns thing going. Uh, yeah, it, it, is, it is a marvelous image. Okay, moving on, the gradual will come from Psalm 143. What is this? What should we, should we be thinking about during this brief prayer? Well, we should always try to think about the reading we just heard, and how these verses are somehow interpreting it or shedding light on it. Um, this week it reads, Deliver me from my enemies, O Lord. Teach me to do your will, for you are my God. So it, it really works out beautifully that the deliverance of Isaac, of course, uh, you know, comes by God himself who provides it. And, of course, both Isaac and uh, Abraham are marvelous examples of obedience, you know, in the midst of terrible uh, trials and difficulty. Let's talk about the, the uh, epistle, and here we are in very familiar territory, Hebrews yeah, chapter another 9. another huge reading. Another huge reading, uh, one of, you know, because it's this whole not the blood of bulls and goats bit. Uh, so again, it's something we could talk about for a long time. Well, the uh, epistle demonstrates from Hebrews 9 that Jesus is not only the victim, but also the priest. Uh, he is our high priest, and that the entire temple and sacrificial system was meant to foreshow his sacrifice. It was never about bulls and goats and rams. It was always about God who would take up flesh to be a sacrifice worthy and appropriate for our sins and the sins of the whole world. Uh, so also at the very end of the reading, we get this business about the, uh, the promise of an eternal inheritance. 
uh, which is for those who are called. Uh, And that really brings in, again, this understanding that the true children of Abraham are, are those who believe what Abraham believed, those who have the hope and faith of Abraham. They're the, they're the true inheritors, not those that just happen to have the right you know, genetic makeup. So it's another nice tie. This is one of those places where you realize why God gave us the, the epistles in the New Testament, because they are the explanations. Uh, they are the kind of the diagrams that say, okay, this is how it really works. And we get this in Hebrews there that... Um, especially coupled, it's beautiful, coupled with that Genesis 22. Um, Why were the sacrifices necessary, and why could they never do what um, ultimately needed to be done for God's people and for us? Your thoughts? Right. And well, and why they had to be repeated, why we had to have so many bulls and goats sacrificed, but then, of course, how much more the blood of Jesus, who offers himself through the eternal spirit without blemish to God, uh, in order to purify our consciences from dead works to serve the living God, it's the mediator of a new testament. Uh, it, yeah, the, I mean Hebrews particularly does that uh, more than more than probably any other letter. And uh, yeah, it's just it's just marvelous. Again, you know, Jesus in the gospel is standing in the temple where these things are taking place, and all of it's about Him. Um, so it's just a it's just a marvelous, comforting passage. The tract, this little uh, statement from Psalm 129, what's there for us, Pastor Peterson? Well, part of what we're going to hear is, The plowers plowed my back. They made long their furrows. The Lord is righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked. So this is a description in the psalm of the suffering, the, the physical suffering of Jesus, that his back is going to be actually whipped and bloody and he's going and unto death. Uh, and, uh, and yet, uh, again, the Lord is righteous. Right? There's not a complaint against God doing this. There's a recognition that this is part of his righteousness and, and more significantly, how he declares us righteous. He has cut the cords of the wicked, uh, is that actually he's cutting us free. He's, a, he's allowing us to escape like birds out of a net. Even though we were rightly caught by the law and the law's accusations, the plowing of Jesus back uh, cuts us free. Before we get to the hymn of the day, a few minutes picking up on that, if you would. Uh, what that tract really uh, emphasizes, as you said, the physical suffering of Jesus and our tendency um, as modern people going into the end of Lent and the beginning of Holy Week is to kind of choose one or the other. Well, he, yes, he fu- suffered physically, but the real suffering was spiritual or something like that. And I don't think we can ever divorce the two. They are intimately bound up together. It is by the stripes that marked his back that we are healed. It's not as though the stripes represented some greater suffering he was going through. Talk about that with a few minutes, if you would. Well, and and of course, he has to actually die. Uh, He he has to actually be separated body and soul uh, physically. It's, It's not just enough uh, when he says it is finished, then he commits his soul to the Father, and, and he, he endures and suffers the last bit of it, which is physical death. And we sometimes act like physical death is, is not that big a deal, you know, because, well, the, well, we're going to heaven, so it's all okay. And uh, that's part of the curse and part of the, and part of the sorrow. And so, uh, no, I agree with you. It's, it's, it's real. It's real. All of this is real. None of it's minor or insignificant. And I suppose, you know, uh, the, the greatest horror that he endures is, 
is the hell that he suffers of separation from his father. But that's not apart from the context of the physical reality that's, that's causing it, that's happening. It's not just symptomatic. It, it, it's part of the punishment, part of the wrath. What do we find in the hymn of the day? Uh, we get hymn number 430. My song is Love Unknown. Uh, it's, a, it's a modern uh, a modern tune, anyway, and a pretty fairly modern text. It's a, a hymn that really marvels, almost breathless in wonder, at what God has done for us in Christ. Uh, it's a very kind of first-person hymn. My song is Love Unknown. My Savior uh, love to me, that kind of stuff, a lot of me's and my's and I's, uh, and oh, who am I that for my sake, my Lord should take frail flesh and die? So it, it's a hymn that's uh, uh, very reflective, uh, very kind of appropriate for kind of Lenten contemplation, um, and it kind of uh, is shocked by the injustice of mercy that, that Jesus has to suffer these things from these horrible people when he just loves them, and he wants to heal them, and he wants to do great things, and yet they cry out, crucify. The, the hymn writer, or the, the people singing this hymn, are just rejoicing this, and at the very end of it, you, it closes with, Here I might stay and sing, no story so divine. Never was love, dear King, never was grief like thine. This is my friend, in whose sweet praise I all my days could gladly spend. So it's it's a nice hymn for Lenten contemplation, for praising God, uh, for the marvelous injustices that he endures in order to be our Savior and to provide this mercy. Finally then, we've talked about it, we've uh, explored it in the course of the Gospel reading, the intro, the epistle, now just the hymn of the day and the other propers. How would you summarize the theme that we ought to be listening for this coming Sunday? This is a good Sunday to talk about Christ taking up his sorrows willingly. They pick up stones to kill him, but he slips away, he hides himself, because he's not just the victim, he's also the priest. He chooses the time, he chooses the place, he does this on purpose. It's not a passive act, that simply that they kill him. So I think something along those lines is very appropriate. It can tie in with Isaac, it can tie in with the epistle, it's all throughout there. And he offers himself out of obedience to the Father and love for us. And then finally, he's simply, he's glad to do this. He wants to save us. Pastor David Peterson is pastor of Redeemer Lutheran Church in Fort Wayne, Indiana, editor of Gottesdienst, the Journal of Lutheran Liturgy. David, thank you very much for being our guest. Thank you, Todd. My pleasure. When we come back, we're going to spend some time with Pastor Brian Ketchelmeyer, our weekly series on Christ in the Old Testament. Talk a lot about the context of Jeremiah 31. Brian says that Jesus is all over the context. We'll find out what he means right after this. We Lutherans, we're never aided by following along with some other traditions, theological priorities, and catchphrases. Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Heath Curtis, Coordinator for Stewardship for the Lutheran Church Missouri Synod on a Lutheran approach to stewardship. Other folks are not approaching it from our good, solid Lutheran understanding of law and gospel and vocation. There's a place to talk about this in Christianity, and we have a way of talking about stewardship as Lutherans without ever using the word stewardship, if you like. I'm going to talk to you today about your vocation in your home, in your church, in your society, and how each one of these makes a claim on you, on your presence, 
on your support, on your prayers. That's how we should talk about this as Lutherans. You'll find several stewardship resources at lcms.org slash stewardship, lcms.org slash stewardship. Putting Christ back into Christian radio, you're listening to Issues Etc. In Hosea 4, we read, My people are destroyed by lack of knowledge. At the CLCC, we educate Lutherans on being Lutheran. The Confessional Lutherans for Christ's Commission treasure our Lutheran beliefs and think that all Christians would if they learned what we believe, teach, and confess. Visit our website at theclcc.org. See what we have to offer. Get on our mailing list, or better yet, join us, and encourage your pastors to hold an event in your area. For more information, go to theclcc.org. Christ at the Center, The Justification of the Ungodly, A Contemporary View of Faith and Reason, The Holy Spirit in Christ. These are just some of the almost 30 essays included in Propter Christum, Christ at the Center. It's a new book of essays in honor of Issues Etc. regular guest, Pastor Daniel Preuss. Find out more and purchase Propter Christum at shop.logia.org. Propter Christum, Christ at the Center, shop.logia.org.